When yesterday's conservative becomes the new radical, when empty establishment becomes the status quo, when counterculture is the culture, the only thing we have to counter is counterculture itself. Sorry to keep you waiting, complicated business. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. Stand up, Australians, and kick out this bunch of traitors. This is a bag of prawns. Whence the besetting temptation of all politics to concern itself with the immediate present at the expense of the future. Hello and welcome to Counter Counterculture. My name is Tim O'Hare. Today I'll be talking about the elections in Europe. All this and more coming right up. Well, I'm fortunate enough uh, to be joined in the studio all the way uh, from Canham Sands uh, by Sam Shuler. Uh, g'day, Sam. Hello. In the studio... On a computer screen, I'm being beamed all the way to Brisbane. I reckon we've, we've suddenly, this injury has just like booted us right into the 21st century. It has, yeah. Yeah, we're utilizing this uh, amazing technology, Skyping. I never really have done much Skyping, so it's brought me into the 21st century, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm surprised it actually works all right. The only time I I remember using Skype was like in first year uni, my par- or second year uni, my parents going overseas and like s- installing Skype on my computer. And I was like, Dad, you do not have the right to install Skype on my computer. You do not have the right to touch my computer. And they're like, no, we just, just want to be able to check in on you. And I'm like, why? You know, that's an invasion of privacy. And you know, they'd call me and we'd have the most stilted calls and like yeah. the audio would like drop and then rise and like the... And lag. Uh, that, that's my my memories of using Skype. It's like, hello, uh, can, but, can you... Uh, but, like you're just making noises like that. Can you see me? Can, can you... Uh, but, and then the uh, the screen just jumping, jumping. Oh, okay, yeah, I can see you. And then you're just like... Ah, um, how are you? Yeah, good. Oh, okay. Ah, well, anyway, <laughs> got to go. Like, it, it, it always just was so awkward because it's not like a phone call. I don't know it, it's weird when you're when you're sitting there looking at each other, just checking up on on someone. But when you're doing this, we're having a conversation about some exciting topics. So uh, it's not stilted for us. It's well, exciting. The, the technology must have massively increased or maybe I well I I actually think my computers have gone downhill over the years actually but uh I mean yeah the the Skype technology must surely have gotten better than when we were first introduced oh definitely yeah it's a uh it's an Estonian uh invention little known fact it's it is Estonia's one claim to fame really I I don't think they're really famous for much else but yeah Maybe they'll, they'll take us over. Maybe they'll be a world power. They could. Them and uh, who was it? Did Finland invent Nokia? I, it, there was something weird like that. Or, or no, Sony Ericsson. There's a couple of these weird little um, 
what's that? The, the Baltic, the Baltic Sea. That they've got a couple of uh, of uh, weird tech inventions. I think that is that Skype was actually the Estonian government was giving out grants to little startups and little uh, like TAFE uh, technical colleges and that sort of stuff. And Skype came up through one of those things. So government mandated innovation does work sometimes well i don't know yeah it's, it's a complicated thing it's sort of like uh i remember labor's chris bowen saying about like the car industry and how you know around about 2013 when the abbott government got in you know holden uh went broke like yeah. ceased doing uh operations on australia and like chris bowen raised the point he's like like, you know, well, sorry, there were a lot of free market arguments like, oh, well, the yeah. government shouldn't be involved in businesses. Let business be business. And I mean, to be honest, I was sympathetic to that. But I remember reading an article, like reading Chris Bowen by Labor saying like, well, every single car industry in the world is propped up by a government. Like ours well, yeah. just simply cannot be competitive unless there is a government backing it because like... It would be fine uh, in a free market world. Like those free market uh, arguments would work in a perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world. I mean, it. it I, I. I can't explain it. It'd be like if. It like. It. It. Would, it it's like saying you know you're a rugby league team and you're saying like oh we're not um. You know, we're not going to bulk up. We're not going to do any of that stuff. No, nah, we're all about just the sheer athleticism. Yeah, but every yeah, other yeah. team has, like, personal trainers and, like, bulk fitness diets and everything. Yeah, and you're like, no, nah, we've got our integrity, guys. We're just going to be... We just love we're the ideological. Game. We're ideologically clean, you know? We're, we're, we're good. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, car, there, there wasn't that many nations in the on the planet that could actually make a car from uh, design all the way up to uh, selling and shipping. Australia was one of, I can't remember the exact number. When we uh, when we had Toyota, Ford and Holden all announced that they're going to cease production, um, we were one of something like 12 or 13 countries on the planet that went from uh, the planning phase all the way through to the production sourcing materials etc etc you know and so yeah it, it's pretty sad um that we've lost it but i mean the uh i guess the fact of the matter was employee wages outstrip like our cars got, were becoming so expensive compared to you know J japanese or or korean or, or chinese cars that, that have so much automation i mean we had a lot of automation as well but whenever we brought in more automation to make our cars cheaper, then the unions would, some would say rightfully, kick up a stink about it and say, oh, well, this is going to cost 500 jobs. Um, and then, you know, our high cost of living means our wages must be higher than those in uh, Vietnam or China. So, I mean, it was a combination of factors. And uh, I, I'm really personally sad that Australia's car manufacturing is out the window. But sadly, in the... Um, in the current world, there just is no feasible solution, you know, for Australian manufacturing, yeah. which is, as I said, which, which is a shame. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I, I brought it up only because, I mean, personally, from like a free market sort of sympathetic point, you know, yeah. examples like, you know, Skype in Estonia and uh, Nokia and Sony Ericsson um, 
in the Baltic states. I can't remember specifically where, but um, those examples do question the free market narrative, the fact that they are state-managed organizations which are successful and they yield jobs for that country and, you know... Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about um, Nokia or Sony Ericsson. I can't remember how they got started, but Skype, Skype definitely got started through government mandated innovation. I mean, it is. Um, it's just about how how a uh, government decides to go about it. I mean, obviously the um, the conventional wisdom says uh, that the free market is the most efficient because. There is so, that self-interest and you know profit motive and all that sort of stuff, um, but you know, you look at um, the USSR. They had the they had uh, the Lada, which was a, a, a quite a good car, a very a very hardy car, that was made by the um, by the government. And uh, say, Skoda, I think in the Czech Republic was a um, government-owned, government-designed uh, thing, and. I guess the the trade-off that that the trade-off that they look for is yeah you lose some efficiency in terms of um, the the design and all that is not as um, is not as razor sharp efficient as it can be in the free market but in exchange you get a vehicle made in that country so I guess part of it is say say with Australia for example we made our um, our, our war vehicles, uh, we, we wouldn't have been able to make our like off-road war vehicles without having a car um, manufacturing infrastructure. You know, like like right now, once our car manufacturing goes away, we, we won't be able to, I know this is kind of an anachronistic argument, but um, in a time of absolute war, we won't be able to repurpose our industries like like Germany, Russia, USA, Britain, and us and various other countries did in times of war. You know, it's 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 kind of the 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 trade-off is yeah, you spend more, uh, you lose some taxpayer dollars, um, but in exchange you have a national industry that can make um, meat and potatoes, uh, you know, industrial goods. You can you can make your own cars or tanks or you know, boats and whatnot. So that is the trade-off. It, it's a very nationalistic uh, sentiment to, you know. Well, I, I, I think it's I think it's very relevant. I mean, like, I'll, I'll be honest to our listeners, we didn't plan any of what we're talking about right now with no, other topics <laughs> to talk about. But like, sort of like one of the key things I think you can agree that our podcast uh, looks at and really focuses on is debates around sovereignty and i would argue yeah. one of the one of the probably top five things that gives you sovereignty in my opinion is manufacturing yeah would you no, agree, with I that? agree yeah yeah 100 percent. and i mean it, it it's it is such a tough it is such a tough um uh area of policy because yeah you have these free market arguments and you have this um you know it goes to jobs, you know, Aussie jobs and all that sort of stuff. And and then the the third the third point is, as you say, sovereignty and and the ability to uh, well, I guess look after yourself as a nation. Um, as it is, Australia won't be able to make its own uh, heavy industry 
like cars and that sort of stuff in a time of need. Say, say hypothetically that the um, global shipping, or at least shipping through the Strait of Malacca and, the, and through the Indonesian islands, say there's a dispute and the Indonesian Navy or the Chinese Navy or someone blockades those ships coming in. Suddenly, Australia doesn't have the ability to make cars, you know? And it's not something that you can just, you know, click your fingers and start back up again. You lose a lot of uh, know-how. You lose a lot of the actual uh, infrastructure. You lose a lot of that, you know? And um, say so this is related, but um, we've only got a couple of oil refineries left in Australia that still operate. Petrol turning crude oil into, um, you know, diesel and petrol and jet fuel and all that. And uh, in a time of need, when we have no crude oil coming in, Australia is is in a right state. I mean, and, and they're talking about shutting, the, like, we've got one in Lytton in Brisbane, uh, a Caltex one, they're talking about shutting that one down. And there's one down in Melbourne as well. And, you know, out of the 25 or so countries in the OECD, you know, the I don't know what it stands for, but the, the economically advanced um, organization economy. of economic cooperation or, and development or something. I yeah, think. yeah, exactly. Yeah, along those lines. So it's basically the, um, the the most advanced economies in the world. Of those of those nations, Australia is the only one that doesn't store a medium term, at least medium term amount of crude oil. We we rely solely on imports, and I mean again. This is the kind of thing that goes to the sovereignty of a nation, the ability of a nation to look after itself in times of crisis. I mean, it's it, it's a bit hard to talk about because it is it does come across as alarmist. People hear you going, but what if there's a war? What if there's a blockade? And they say, oh, don't be silly. But, you know, there's no point in being lax about these things. We do live in increasingly uncertain times. So maybe down the track we can do a special about this kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you get these arguments. One thing that, uh, I don't know, I could do like a special on this, but like the whole, yeah. um, the hypocrisy of the Greens, or maybe maybe hypocrisy is too strong, but inconsistency. But, you know, yeah. with um, things like the car debate, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, the Greens' position was, oh, don't give money to cars, invest in sustainable industries. Mm. Uh but then their position on foreign affairs is don't uh, ally with the US, you know, do what's in Australia's interests. Well, there's an inherent inconsistency there. I mean, the reason we are so tied to the US is because we don't have sovereignty with any of our industries, really. We don't have a manufacturing industry that is sustainable. We don't have, um, as you say, we don't have sufficient crude oil. Uh, we don't have... Oh, like all, all these factors is what determines our foreign policy because, or our foreign policy determines these factors. It's a bit of a chicken egg, <laughs> but like basically, you can't be an independent nation. Um, um you, you can't say, oh no, we decide what's in Australia's interests and all this, uh, completely if your entire economy is, you know, ma yeah. manufacturing wind farms as the Greens <laughs> would like, you know. Yeah, I mean. And this, this, this is a um, this is a fact of life that a lot of Australians need to sort of accept that we are not really sovereign. We don't really have that much sovereignty in Australia. We are 100% dependent on 
America, basically. Uh, the ANZUS Treaty uh, is the is what keeps us afloat. You know, so much trade we do with the United States. I think they're our, they're our number one trading partner. Uh, previously, it was the UK, and previously we we relied on the UK to uh, for our sovereignty. In terms of um, force projection, that's what keeps us completely safe, and that's what stops people from bargaining too hard with us. Uh, is that is that we have our big brother across the Pacific, who is uh, at least on paper going to look out for us, and that's why we went to Iraq. That's why we went to these Afghanistan and. And John Howard was basically the first guy to sign up to support the coalition of the willing. It's it's not because we had a bone to pick with Iraq. It's not because of you know any of that. It's because in real politic terms, we have to do that to appease our the guy with the big stick. Basically, he he looks after us, and we. Uh, we vote for him on the UN, you know, boards and all that sort of stuff. Australia is even more so than the European countries. Australia votes with the with the US on Israel, and like France doesn't do that anymore. For example, France doesn't vote in favour of Israel anymore, and Australia still does. So I mean, we France France is a nuclear power. France can look after itself, or at least it has the um, the deterrent there. Australia has no deterrent. And this, this is a bone that this really sticks in my craw that Australia is not allowed to have nuclear weapons. I don't, I don't understand why we are not allowed to have a deterrent of nuclear weapons. I mean, we're, we're a pretty stable country. So you what, know, the UN stops that? Yeah. Uh, the UN, the, they call it the, um, the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons Treaty or whatever, you know, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, I think it's called. And essentially it's, you know, the, the, the um, five permanent members, UK, France, Russia, uh, China, and the US. They're the five nuclear powers, nuclear weapons powers. And then you've got India, Pakistan, who are non-signatories, and that they're in like a gray area. You've got Israel, who doesn't even admit they've got nukes, but everyone knows Israel has nukes. Uh, the, the, the Samson option, everyone knows that that's what they've got. And then, of course, North Korea and China. I'm oh, sorry, uh, North Korea and Japan. Japan allegedly has nukes, but North Korea we know has some nukes. But in terms of foreign policy, when you have nukes, you can take that to the table and say, I'm not to be messed with. And that's why North Korea, as much of a basket case as it is, even the US won't really touch it because... Nukes are this very big deterrent, and it, it it allows you to be taken seriously. And don't get me wrong; that's probably the reason why they won't allow Australia to have nukes, because maybe one day we could go rogue and like point the gun to, I don't know, Indonesia's head or someone. Well, I, 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 I don't know. Like, I don't know the history here, but I suspect this treaty was drawn up around about. Uh, like not too long after the conclusion of the Second World War, so that yeah, that that yeah. perspective needs to be taken into account. I mean, Australia was yeah. not uh, nowhere near uh, a world player at that stage. Australia was uh, quite like the population was tiny. Um, yeah. It was it considered itself to be a largely British, like colonial nation. It didn't really have. Uh, as much of a national identity, as much of a like 
uh, like, you know, a desire to really have any independent voice. There wasn't that yeah. overwhelming desire that had been realised to be an independent voice on the in- international scene. I mean, there were certainly Australians who wanted that. I can't speak for everyone, but I'm saying yeah. it wasn't as widespread as it is today kind of thing. No. Well, th- and that's why they often talk about Anzac Day, which this podcast will probably be released just after Anzac Day 2017. Uh, it's, a cu- it's a couple of days before right now. But um, that's why they, they talk about the landing at Gallipoli as being really our, our first um, national sort of awakening to any kind of Australian identity. You've got to remember, I guess, at the time of Federation, most Australians were born overseas. You know, there's, there was, we were either, oh, he's a Scot, or no, he's an Irishman, or he's an Englishman, or German, or, or even uh, Chinaman. So, I mean, we had that, that kind of thing back then. Um, it wasn't until a few generations later, such as just after World War II, uh, where we started to get this kind of identity of uh, uh, we are Australians, we are the diggers, um, but we've never really been able to stand on our own two feet in in all that way. We've always punched above our weight, sure, in terms of you know exporting and uh, sports. I mean, I know it sounds funny, but sports is a very uh, important thing for a nation, and Australia has always punched hugely above its weight. In fact, I think Australia is easily one of the greatest sporting nations on the on the planet uh, when you look at our population compared to our um, our uh, Olympic medals, for example. We're one of the only nations that's competed in every single Olympics. Um, but we've every never really... Every single Olympics, or well, not the Greek Olympics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We was, we, we was Olympians, mate. Yeah, we were there. We were there. It's... Uh, yeah, yeah, haven't you seen? you you, you got to look. you got to look at the... Um, at the old pictures, if you look closely at the old Greek ruins, there's actually an inscription of a bloke with a big wide brim hat and it's got corks with hanging from strings and he's got a didgeridoo. And uh, yeah, no, mate, we were there. We were there. Just, we was uh, there. We was there. We, we was Olympians, for um, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting thing because, um, well, is Canada, th- does Canada have nukes, actually? That was going to be mine. No. No, yeah, exa- well, exactly. I mean, th- these are nations that are sort of, they realised uh, themselves on the world scene, uh, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century after the treaty was devised. Um, actually, uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say, like, when I um, s- studied history at uni, first course, Australian history, and there was a quote by, like, Manning Clark, I believe, the historian, and it was like, Australian history begin began with a blank space on the map, and it and and it reali- and it was realised with the ANZAC, and then we spent the next you know twelve weeks dissecting that quote and saying how problematic it is because. <laughs> <laughs> is that because it erased um, indigenous, like, uh, presence and that sort of stuff? Yeah. Is that, what do you mean? Yeah. Okay. O- also. Yeah, I mean typical whatever. I'd also argue, though, that really Australian Australia's uh, national identity, I would argue, was more of a Kokoda thing than an Ant- than a Gallipoli thing. I'm much more in yeah, favour of commemorating Kokoda than Gallipoli. I mean, Kokoda was yeah. where we were actually under threat and where we were actually fighting for Australia, not for Britain, really. Yeah, that that is that, that there's a lot of merit to that. Um, well. 
you know, the, the whole Gallipoli thing was nothing to do with Australia at all. Obviously, everyone knows that. And the Ottomans, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm uh, pretty sure the Ottomans never had any uh, southern expeditions all the way down to Australia, you know. Like, this, this is – this was not – it was all about king, king and country and, um, you know, defending the motherland. And this is – I guess this can tie back to my point about the Iraq War and um, Afghanistan, the coalition of the willing, it was more about paying our dues, you know, uh, letting, sort of showing, let it be known that this is where we stand type thing. Uh, we were a Commonwealth, we are a Commonwealth nation, and we will go to war for them, even if that means, you know, losing 50,000, 100,000, I don't know how many Australians died in World War Two, thousands upon thousands, you know, slaughtered, uh, at, at the uh, at the beachfront at Gallipoli, um, but yeah, you, you got a good point where we actually were attacked militarily. You know, we had the Darwin, 242 people killed in Darwin uh, bombing. People do forget that, you know, or maybe not forget, but just it's kind of just glossed over. Like the thought of Australia, say we we lose our minds when we had the Lint Cafe siege. And what was it? Two people killed, two hostages killed, and the uh, and the hostage taker was killed. In Darwin, we had 240 people killed at a time when we had you know seven million people total in the whole country. So it's a it's an important part of history. And I, I agree with you that the the story of the Kokoda Trail, the story of the Burma railways, um, the Japanese you know prison camps, the depraved conditions. I mean, they were worse than the Nazis and the that story bears more um, nation birthing, I think, than the Gallipoli story. Not to downplay the Gallipoli story, but um, as as you say, uh, it was us on our doorstep, you know. Yeah. And um, and, and us and the and the uh, fuzzy wuzzy angels, as as they as they became known. Uh, um, the, yeah. the the interesting thing, uh, well, I'm, I'm not a expert on it, but my understanding about Gallipoli was really that it was actually quite arbitrary. I mean, it wasn't our war, but it also wasn't Turkey's war, really. The main reason that Turkey, uh, my understanding is that Turkey went to uh, war in World War One. It was a they call it the chain gang effect. So it was like you know there was the conflict. Uh, what was it between Austria, the Archduke in Austria, and then... Serbian anarchist. Yeah, the Serbian anarchist. So these t- tiny nations really going to war against it, uh, like having a conflict, oh. but then, you know, they go and grab their mates, you know, Germany, and yeah. uh, the other goes and grabs uh, yeah, England. Yeah, well, like, Austria, Austria was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so it was like the big... The big, uh, it, like its seat of power was in Austria, in Vienna, but but it, it had all the way down through Hungary, and th- there's a lot of history to it. Obviously, it, it used to be two empires, but then the uh, the Austrian, the the the, uh, the Habsburg Empire, the Austrian Catholic, um, su- Southern German, the Catholics, uh, they united the two kingdoms, and it ended up being uh, one big empire. And then yeah, you had the Serbians who were having their little quarrels because, you, well, in the 1910, 1912, 13, you had the first Balkan Wars, 
which was, you know, the Balkans is all down, Yugoslavia, all down there, Serbia. They were having a big fight. The Greeks were involved. You had the Ottomans there. And so it was kind of like, that was the start of World War One. It was already creeping up into Europe. And then you had Archduke Ferdinand, you know, um, going through in a car and there was a grenade, you know, yeah. and uh, he was killed. And so because it was Serbia, which was not not from Austria's empire, but it was part of the the, uh, the war area. Austria, Austro-Hungary declared war on Serbia, and then Russia saw, had Serbia as an ally. Came in and you know yeah. chain chain effect. So so what what I was trying to say, sorry, I wasn't right. going to give the whole history of it, but what sorry, I was trying sorry. to sorry, I, I get carried, I get carried away sometimes. I'm yeah, sorry. no, me too. But uh, yeah, uh, what, what I was going to say is like if you look at it. Yeah, it started between two nations like that and it spread out, but arguably both Turkey and Australia were quite on the periphery. Of all the yes. nations in the war, they were arguably the least connected to this original well, struggle. And yeah. Turkey's main reason for entering, my understanding, is they have a historic conflict with Russia. There's always... Yeah. Tur- Turkey and Russia have, like, always been rivals. You know, Turkey's always been afraid of being invaded by Russia... And, you know, being a fairly, like, a declining power, they sort of thought, sort of you said, like, use the metaphor with America, like the man with the big stick. Well, their man with the big stick was Germany, so they allied with Germany. And Australia's man with the big stick was England, so they allied with England. And my understanding, the reason the British went after Turkey, I think was a way of fortifying Russia or it had it had a connection to Russia. Like if they could take over Turkey, they could get all their troops yeah. into Russia and then like be able to defeat Germany that way. So it was all, all, yeah, yeah. All, like all I this was like we're not I'm not we're not World War One uh scholars or anything, but it was like well pro, uh, Germany and Austria allied which was interesting because they'd been fighting wars like just 50 years previous. They'd been fighting wars. And um, what you say about Russia, yeah, because um, the Crimean War was the Ottoman Empire, uh, the, the, the Tatars and the Ottoman Empire against Russia. And, you know, you had uh, Britain and everyone involved in that as well. So, I mean, this is the thing. Like when people say, oh, the end of history and the, end, and the war to end all wars and all that, like, you just got to look a little bit further back and you see, oh, here's another war. Oh, here's an ex- a continuation of this war. And, you know, so you've got all these stories and things intertwined. And, um, yeah, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire was the sick man of Europe, um, you know, dictatorial. It was technically the, um, the, the caliphate. They called themselves the caliphate. They were the seat of Muslim power and uh, they were almost dead. And, yeah, as you say, they... Um, an alliance of uh, convenience and self-interest, as, as all alliances are. And what you mentioned about Russia and Ottoman Empire is interesting because if the Red October, you know, if the um, sorry, the uh, the revolution in in 1917 in Russia, if that failed, Russia was to receive the uh, carcass of the Ottoman Empire in Anatolia, in Turkey. They were to receive it the, the same way that. You know, Britain and uh, France divvied up the Middle East with, you know, um, mandatory Palestine and Syria, you know, Lebanon, 
uh, French-speaking colonies up until World War II. Um, and, and, you know, Britain had in there Jordan and, and Iraq and all that was all Ottoman. That got divvied up by the by the Allied powers. and be, But Russia withdrew from all that because they had a communist revolution. But the plan was that Russia was to actually receive Anatolia, was to receive Constantinople, Istanbul now, but back then it was still called Constantinople. It didn't change until the 1930s. And see that, I mean... We, we all know that the uh, communist revolution in Russia absolutely changed the course of history hugely. But, I mean, the more you read about it, the more you realize just how big that that uh, whole – the Bolsheviks – if for how, how small in number they were to how much influence they had on history. I mean, it, it boggles the mind, honestly. But, yeah, yeah that's oh, well, history. The, the rest is history. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, was, oh, so I suppose just just to conclude that point, I mean, it was quite. Yeah. Uh, well, all I'm saying is, it was <laughs> almost like a geographical coincidence that the Australians yeah, yeah. really went to Turkey because it was near Russia and near Germany, and it happened to become the centre of of the conflict. But it was it 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 wasn't based on a conflict of nations really between Australia and Turkey, just geographical coincidence and military strategy. Just allies. Alliances and um, yes, self-preservation. I mean, the same reason we ended up in the desert, you know, in uh, Libya. The same reason we ended up in the desert in Iraq. I mean, it's just the way foreign policy works. But yeah, we, we may as well move on. I mean, we we didn't plan that uh, that segment, but I mean, yeah, I guess we're, we're we, 30, 32 minutes into. Geez, already? You serious? Time flies. Time flies. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize. I didn't realize. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought about stopping us, but I thought, hey, it's probably hey, more anyway. interesting than some of the shit we got planned. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I thought with with Anzac Day coming up, that's uh, it, it's a nice little thing to talk a little bit about uh, wars that we've been in and uh, nation identity. So yeah, that's good. But but we should move on to the news of the day, shouldn't we? Yeah. So all right. So. I mean, the big thing, I suppose, um, and I think we'll cut straight to it, we'll cut straight to the meat, really, of what we want to talk about, is uh, Theresa May has called an election in the UK. Um, Did that take you off guard, Sam? Um, Yeah, it did. I I didn't even uh, have it even in the back of my mind. Uh, I... I think part of the reason why I really didn't expect it was because I kind of put that possibility on the back back burner because the UK has now got the fixed term uh, policy, uh, fixed parliamentary terms, five years. And uh, they require, I think it's a two-thirds majority vote in the House of Commons. And I just kind of said to myself, oh, well, there goes most chances of an early election in the UK for the near future. Um, I thought, you know, you got Brexit going on. Theresa May has a, a not a massive majority, but a, it, she's got a, a sturdy majority. She has a, a, you know, very weak opposition. And I thought, well, she, she'll she just, you know, coast for the next three years. Sure, she was never elected in her own right as prime minister, but she'll coast in. Brexit will happen, you know, next year or whenever it is, and then she'll have until 2020 to, uh, to um, you know, deal with that. So, yeah, I was, I was taken off guard. How about you? 
Yeah, so that that we're talking that was Wednesday, wasn't it? I believe that she announced the election. Um Wednesday or Thursday, yeah. Yeah, so maybe, maybe it was Wednesday British time, Thursday our time. Uh Yeah, well that, that that's the thing though. To me it makes sense cuz Okay, so David Cameron was uh elected in uh, 2015, he was re-elected. Sorry to interrupt you, Tim. Sorry to interrupt. So it makes sense, but did you expect it? No, I, d- I didn't expect it. Uh, but I kind of, if anything, I would have thought she would have probably done it uh, a bit sooner. Like Yeah, no, no, I agree with that, yeah. Uh, after becoming Prime Minister. So David Cameron was elected uh, in 2000, re-elected in 2015, around June, June May, June uh, 2015. And... Yeah. Uh, he resigned in June 2016. So only about a year into his term, he resigns. And I thought about it at the time. And like with Jeremy Corbyn as leader and everything, I thought, fucking hell, Theresa May just has like a dream run as <laughs> Prime Minister because she's just got four years basically in the job. Uh, guaranteed four years. Um, and... Like, right now, you know, the Labor Party's divided. Who knows who will be the leader in four years? I just thought, like, fuck, she, like she's guaranteed four years. Like, most Australian prime ministers don't last three years. Like, yeah, uh, not these days, anyway. Well, yeah, h- historically, I mean, even going back before, I mean, a lot of the early prime ministers... The early ones, yeah. Um, I, I, guess, I guess since, um, you know, Menzies... Oh, then you had, like... Anyway, that, that, that's beside the point, but yeah. But like, yeah, so I, I thought at the time, like, that's a pretty dream dream run to just be in for four years. And I, I can see her rationale. Um, obviously, there's the, the Corbyn factor is, you know, strike while your enemy is at its weakest. But yeah, one thing, well, like, I, I mean, that's fairly self-explanatory. But the other thing I'd think about is look at just how volatile... Um, our uh, political climate is. I mean, if someone asked you in 2012, right after Obama won against Romney, if someone said, who will be the next president, would you have said Donald Trump? <laughs> Why are you asking that question? I, I, honestly, you, you could poll... I was, this is the thing. I'd love if you could like go back in time and poll like the entire planet. Poll the entire planet and just see if even one person said Donald Trump, you know? Because maybe, maybe in 2004, maybe a few people would have said Barack Obama if they knew him as a... No, um, no one would have said Barack Obama. Well, well, I thought maybe if they knew him as an organiser, that they knew his, uh, his ambitions, like maybe yeah, people well, close to Yeah, a Chicago, like, subsection of the community who, like, a pretty low but, but income... He, he was a congressman, wasn't he? A, a senator? He was elected in 04. So, I mean, yeah. that would be like, you know, yeah, someone, yeah, that would be like predicting Tim Wilson will be prime minister in 2019. Like, Is, is that your prediction, Tim? No. But like <laughs> what, what I'm saying, like Tim Wilson got in in 2016 yeah. to predict that someone would rise to the top within a term is yeah. quite unprecedented. So, yeah, I don't think anyone would have predicted Obama. But, uh, but I think more would have predicted him than would have predicted Donald Trump. Nah, yeah. actually, I remember there were like a lot of. Uh, I'll disagree with you there. Um, yeah. I reckon there were a lot of. Uh, like, 
if you look at you've you've talked about betting odds before, like betting sure. odds for next liberal leader, and you know yeah, how you yeah. get like Mike Baird or someone that that's like yeah, the tenth. Yeah. Uh, I reckon Donald yeah. Trump was that that on a lot of lists, like for years, because I mean, as you know, uh, George H. W. Bush wanted Donald Trump as his running mate. Um, he was reform party candidate for president in 2000. Actually, yeah, in 2000, you're right. Um, and so Donald Trump's always been like the a dark horse contender, but like, I, I agree, not taken seriously, but more people would have said Donald Trump than Obama, of course, just because more people know Donald Trump's name. I mean, you yeah, are someone yeah, I, I on the you, other side of America uh, in 2004, who Obama is, they're not going to know if, unless you're in Illinois or you're like a Washington insider for the Democratic Party. You wouldn't have known yeah. who Obama. Would. Yeah, you don't have someone down in uh, down in Arkansas like, oh, Obama, that 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 young dark fella that just got, yeah, I think he's in with a chance. You know, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's not. Gonna but so the point but I was the, making back with back to the point, yeah. The point I was making with May though is. Uh, she, um, yeah, so the climate is so volatile. We don't know where we are in five years and five years is when her term, oh, sorry, oh, like three years is when her term comes up. So 2015 uh, to 2020 is her term, like that she's entitled to. Uh, well, well, I mean, that the conservative government is entitled to. Like, uh, th- they don't have to hold another election until, like, May 2020. She doesn't know what the zeitgeist will be in 2020. She doesn't know w- where Britain is going or where the world is going by 2020. Yeah. So, ca- call an election in 2017 while you're ahead. You beauty. I mean, that's a good strategic move. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think she's done a very clever move um i was reading in the weekend australian yesterday um was it greg sheridan i think yeah greg sheridan you know i i i, I don't really like him that much uh, i'm a bit of a fan yeah you're a fan i i, I, don't, I don't really like him um our, our he, mate uh dom cusack i lent uh, Greg Sheridan's memoir to Cusack and he um, still hasn't given it back. Apparently he's given uh. it to his dad and his dad <laughs> is reading it and you know how dads always read books really slow? I mean, Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I the, the books that I've got my dad, I've got, in, he's got Darren Lockyer's autobiography or he's got Paul Vorton's autobiography called Fatty from 1993 or 92. He's got Wally Lewis, he's got he's got all these footy player autobiographies. I don't think he's even picked one of them up. So, well, maybe that's the problem. You're getting him footy player autobiographies. I mean, well, I've got him Stephen Fry's autobiography as well, and because he loves Fry, that's a bit of a, a contradiction, eh? Like, like would uh, you know, Fatty Vorton and Stephen Fry, you know, let's say they're waiting for a plane together, would they have much to talk about, really? Well, I mean, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised because uh, Q&A, uh, sorry, not Q&A, QI, the, the you know, panel show that Stephen Fry runs or used to run, it, it's it's quite a funny show and it's, you know, dads do, I guess, um, my, my dad's not an ocker, you know, he's, he's a, you know, normal 
Australian guy who was, you know, raised in the bush, but he's not like a see, he's not from Irish stock. That's the thing. He's not he's not from Irish stock. He's not a, a um a big drinker, fighter type like a lot of um Australian people are. He's from German stock and he's from Methodist English stock. So he's much more um quiet uh you know, he he loves the foot, he loves sport, but he he's not the type to be loud and at the pub, that sort of thing. Um, as opposed to say maybe my mother's side of the family, they are from Irish stock. They're also from Chinese and indigenous stock. So they've got a bit of a mixed bag, but oh, the yeah, this, that, this podcast is multiracial. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm the, um, I'm the, uh, the, uh, affirmative action <laughs> and, uh, but they're the types that would, that love footy, but would never listen to Stephen Fry. They wouldn't even probably know who he is. And if they, if I told them, they'd probably be uh, inclined to call him names that I can't repeat. But um, uh, so, so hang on, where's the Irish stock play into it? So the Irish are more likely to uh, fight, drink, and uh, be lesser educated, more likely to be convicts, um, and that's just the reality. Yeah, I'm. I, I disagree sorry. with some of that. I, I can see, I can see, I can see our audio engineer. Jeff Brennison getting upset in the background, and Tim Timothy O'Hare. Um, I'm I'm sorry to be so racist against you, but no, uh, I actually think well, the fact of the matter. I do think that. Okay, well, I mean, we can't stereotype, but I mean, yes, Irish people yeah. tend to drink more than average, and also, yeah, they might like a bit of a a balmy in the pub kind of thing. Uh, but then, uh, but. No, I don't think Irish people are less educated at all. I mean, I think Ireland actually has a real culture of kind of, uh, like, great poets are from Ireland, great writers are from Ireland. Ireland has this great storytelling culture. They're quite a philosophical culture, a theological culture, which we'll talk about, like... uh, uh, Talk about, like, really distinctly, you know, heaven and hell type stuff, which... Just would never come up in like an Anglican kind of like a know. Church of England gathering. So no, I think Irish people are quite deep, actually. Well, I mean, that's the same that uh, Africans uh, have got a very rich storytelling history. You know, very uh, oral history, um, spoken word, uh, more rhythmic sort of a thing. Whereas I think the uh, Protestant side of Europe, um, this is in the in the uh, Ireland Europe dichotomy. I think the the more Protestant side. Uh, I was thinking more Germans than um, Anglicans, but you know they're more by the book. I think um, Germans, French as well. I mean, there are a lot of French Catholics, but um, they're the more bookish people than the Irish. Uh, I mean, maybe in the last couple of hundred years, the Irish have have become this way, more philosophical and whatnot. But I mean, I think historically speaking, the uh, the cradle of European civilization was northern England, northern uh, fuck, northern Europe, and uh, perhaps moving into uh, the United Kingdom later on. Well, I suppose it depends where you look at hi- history, but I mean, going back that far, Australia, you know, was really just well, we're nothing, There's just no like a, a, a series of disparate indigenous tribes. So if you if, if you say like well. if you say like oh well the Irish people you know, 300 years ago were, you know, uneducated yeah. heathens. Yeah, that's fair enough. 
But yeah. then by that logic, you sort of got to deny Australian culture too because if, if we're I only do. talking about culture that extends beyond 300 years, then yeah, we, well, Australia didn't really have a culture 300 years ago, you know? I, I agree, yeah. I mean, there, there's really... I mean, Australians are European. I mean, that's that, that's just the reality. I mean, um, the, the nation is was built by Europeans and it was uh, founded by Europeans and and we are, you know, same as America. We're an offshoot of, of various European factions. Um, if you want to look at civilization, there is no such thing as an Australian civilization. We are an outpost of the West, and that's that's that. Yeah. But I mean, well, we are getting well off topic. Let's get back to the. I, I, I reckon yeah, you, you, we've gone six degrees. I reckon. Oh, I know. We, we've 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 covered everything uh, in this podcast so far. Yeah. So the, so okay. What do you topic. think of Theresa May calling the election then? Yeah, I think it. I think it was clever. It was clever. Yeah. Uh, so this this started by me talking, bringing up Sheridan, didn't it? So yeah, Greg Sheridan. I was looking at this. Um, this article that he's written, and it, it, it's a, it's quite a long one, but it is it, it's brings up a few good points. I mean, obviously, Ireland in Corbyn has a England. I mean, you mean. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, England. I said Ireland. England in Corbyn, England, the the UK has a um, Labour has a um, he's not he's not crazy, you know. He's he's not an idiot. But he sure enough is very Trotsky in his in his flavour. He's um Is these is are very, these Sheridan's words or yours? Uh Sheridan brings up Trot he says Trotskyite, yeah. But I mean uh, this is me speaking. Um he 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 is uh the furthest left leader that the Labour Party has ha- have had in a long time, if not ever. And I mean that they've done this by the the most idiotic system of electing a um, parliamentary leader by opening up anyone who pays three quid can get a vote on who's the leader. I mean, that's to me is, is nonsense, nonsensical. It's not democratic. It's, it's activist it's activism. I mean, yeah, it, it, it makes me look back on my labor days and cringe because I, I advocated for a similar model here in Australia <laughs> where I was, I mean, like, that, that's fine. You were young and that's, you know, idealism. Oh, no, but, uh, I found that really funny how, I don't know. I mean, I, I touch upon it in uh, the podcast all the time, and we we uh, it's something I think I will never forget, and I always like to bring up, regardless of whether people like to listen to it. But essentially, in Labor, I was advoc- I was a right winger in the Labor Party advocating for internal democracy, and yeah. other right wingers in it were against internal democracy. And then I cannot. I look back with all the logic I have now and realize how fucking naive I was realizing that if we opened up the Labour Party and just allowed like everyone to have a vote, I would get crushed. There would be no me. And I did get crushed, but before that, but I mean, if if we it's, it's almost like uh, opening the borders to your nation, to people who are not ideologically similar to you. Well, well, basically, if you think about it like this, because I do want to talk about Corbyn, but yeah. I- I'll talk about it through this kind of thing. If you think about it, all parties have their voters who want certain things uh, that accord with the party, but really they want certain things that probably... They're like, you know, I'm talking their staunch voters. 
they won't want certain things that the party is delivering, but they also want certain things that the party would just would just destroy the party. Like for example, yeah. Labor voters here, I, you poll like staunch Labor voters who here in Australia, people who have never voted anything but Labor, and you ask them their views on immigration, and I'd say a disproportionate amount would want open borders kind of thing even though Labor governments have historically not delivered open borders. Yeah. So, so does, does that metaphor, uh, does that sort of analogy make sense in that it's like Labor's here and some people will always vote it, but then yeah. their heart of hearts is over here. And so what I'm saying is the, what, it, it, you're exactly right when you say the UK uh, Labor leadership election is retarded because what it does is give the supporters all the power when the way modern democratic parties function is you've got these sort of pragmatic people working in the offices who have to make the calls and make the decisions of where can we, uh, what can we do that will make us still electable. And, you know, when you elect, when you just play to the supporters, then what you wind up is you're just preaching to the choir and, you know. Yeah. Look, it's and especially like making it three pounds. It's it's amazing that that all all they're doing is opening it up to like anti far types, these like uh, street activists who really they they're looking more for a revolution than anything else. And that's not how Western politics works. You don't like that's just not how it works. You can't have a parliamentary party like that. And say with. Most parties, membership relies on a bigger fee, which, you know, some people can say, oh, you're locking out poor people. Maybe they are. But maybe you can use wealth accumulation, even a moderate amount of wealth accumulation, like say, say 100 pounds, about $130, whatever that is. Say you've got 100 pounds and it's disposable enough that you can pay that for your membership to a party. That at least shows that you have a few core abilities you can hold down a job you can save money and it, it's not an, a crazy amount of money right so um most parties require that maybe a yearly membership fee of 100 pounds um maybe it requires them to have been members for five years before they get voting rights to elect leaders you know these kind of things it, they're safeguards against uh branch stacking they're safeguards against essentially party infiltration which is exactly what's happened with Labor in the UK, they, they've let themselves go to the dogs and they're reaping the rewards. Labor is now polling 24% uh, as, a, as a primary, uh, at the same time that the, the, the Tories are polling 48 49%. I mean, to, to have the, the main party polling double, double what the opposition is, like that is, um, can you imagine having that in Australia? And this is not even, we have, we have a coalition. Even if our coalition combined and doubled Labor's vote, that would be historic. This is a single party doubling the vote of the opposition. Yeah. Almost, almost having a majority in its own right in terms of um, in terms of primary votes. I mean, that is huge, and it's solely because Labor is such a rabble. Well, that, that's the thing that, with Corbyn. You've exactly got that Trotskyite. Uh, notion basically Corbyn's idea like 
you know, and, and I, I should preface this by saying it's easy to slag Corbin off. You know, there's yeah. th- there's a lot of people who say he's a lunatic, and well, I'm not going to really defend him. He is a bit of a lunatic, really. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but I mean, I'm not going to get hysterical about him and say reds no. under the beds. Uh, but no. what I am going to say is really Corbin's ideology is that it's better to lose and have your dignity than to sort of get that responsibility and uh, make changes and make compromises. So Corbyn's ideology is, oh, well, we're going to have our our ideas which, like, extend this far and if that only gets... If that gets 51%, then we'll we'll govern and we won't change our ideas. But if that gets... uh, if that gets 40%, yeah, that's fine. If, if that gets 20%, you know, that's fine. If, if that gets 10%, that's fine because what we're doing is advocating for our ideas and it's much more noble to uh it's it's much more noble to d- be defeated in his idea. So, I actually uh, another thing I want to touch on is I find it funny like I'm sure a lot of uh there are a lot of lefties here who love Jeremy Corbyn. And yeah. um, you ask them, oh, who's your favourite Australian Prime Minister? They would say Gough Whitlam. Well, I find that really funny because Jeremy Corbyn is like the reincarnation. Maybe Keating. No, nah, they'd say Gough Whitlam. <laughs> Paul Keating like was a privatisation man. But a-, a lot of lefties who don't know that much about him say, oh, bring back Keating. Because he used to slam the conservatives in parliament, and that's all I need to know about him, yeah. basically. But yeah. anyway, sorry, continue. Okay, so a lot of lefties who love Jeremy Corbyn would say, "Oh yeah, I, I vote. I'd love to vote Labor, but oh, they they're just too far right wing. Uh, I, I I wish they could, you know, uh, go back to the days of Whitlam, you know. But it, it's funny because Corbyn is like the reincarnation." of the people that uh, uh, that Whitlam fought against in, like, the mm. 1960s, the Bolsheviks in the Labour Party who kept saying, no, nah, no, nah, it's nobler to lose. And Whitlam yeah. had that quote, like, uh, he's like, blessed are the impotent, for they will inherit the earth. Like, he, he was... Whitlam had this whole idea of, no, we have to be electable. We have to be a pragmatic party that makes... Uh, makes compromises and that actually wins elections. Um, and yeah. there's no dignity in being that person on the sidelines throwing shit at the government and all, and never actually have bearing the responsibility of government. So that was a big thing with Whitlam and also a big thing with uh, Neil Kinnock, who most of our listeners probably haven't heard of, but like in a way you could almost say Neil Kinnock was a bit like a British Gough Whitlam, only he never... Mm-hmm. Well, he never became never prime minister, but he was like the opposition leader during the Thatcher years. That was like, no, look, guys, we're going crazy right now. We need to just steady the ship and move a little bit, like be a little bit more pragmatic. Was, was he? Was he the father of what became the Blairite sort of factions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny how people's perceptions uh, can be so shallowly informed you know like that they 
kind of pick their guy who they think is their guy and they'll just uh, go for it and they don't really know the ins and outs. Um, Corbin, he's been around for a long time. I guess good on him for sticking by his principles. We can at least say that, but it is not what's needed. He, he, you know, he, he's even changed that he's, he, he stuck by his principles, but he changed being pro, he, he's now pro EU or he's, he's technically actually Labor haven't taken a position on, on Brexit. But, you know, it's all been about opposing. And, you know, the party is de facto pro-EU, even though Corbyn has spent so much time coming from that far-left perspective of, oh, no, the EU is a capitalist, you know, whatever. Whereas the uh, UKIP is coming from a nationalist perspective. Uh, so it's interesting that he wouldn't hold that... Um, he wouldn't hold that value. He would actually flop on that. Kind of disappointing, to be honest. Yeah. Um, we're, we're about 60 minutes in. If we can... I, I still have a little bit I want to talk yeah. about. If we can keep yep. it going for about 10 more minutes, uh, 10, Max. 15 minutes, yeah. Um, okay, so... Did you, want, did you want to talk or do you want me to talk? Uh, oh, hang on. I, well, I want us both to talk. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I, I had something I wanted to t- say. Oh. Um, so, like... Well, if you think about it like this, okay, like no party can, like in the modern age, I I think can like really uh, hold the interests of every uh, like uh, of a majority of constituents for too long. There's always going to be people upset on all sides of the political spectrum, and th- the art of modern politics seems to be we we talked about coalitions. Uh, in Dutch politics, well, here in the UK and Australia, there are coalitions. They're just not formal coalitions because they're not separate parties, but rather separate factions within parties. So you have a party like the Conservative Party, which is sort of uh, benefiting very much from this split in the left. But there there are, like, certainly... there, there. there are people who disagree with the Conservatives, but they are benefiting right now from a division, like a lack of unity from their opposition. I won't even say left and right, I will say their opposition. But if you think about yeah. it like this, I want to... Okay, so uh, two years ago when the UK election was and Ed Miliband lost, if I asked you who will be the next UK Labour leader, you wouldn't have... Would you have said Jeremy Corbyn? No, I probably would have said David Miliband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Corbyn was a break from business as usual. And is there really any reason why, if Corbyn wasn't the leader, is there any reason why they would go back to business as usual? Sorry, what was that? Is there any reason, if Corbyn wasn't the leader, why they would go back to business as usual? No, I mean they just got wiped out. So, what what they were doing wasn't working, I think. Well, w- what I'm saying is, if you think about it, the people who are opposed to Theresa May's Conservatives, the two biggest opposition groups really are the Labor Party and UKIP, or yeah, the the uh, if you can put a broader category, British nationalists. So you've got. British yeah. leftists and British nationalists. So UKIP also covering the British National Party 
and the Brexit voters, which won a small uh, majority, although Brexit voters, some were conservative, some were uh, Labour voters. Some, some were Labour, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is I can't help but feel that if there's this vacuum where leftists and nationalists are excluded right now and they're against Theresa May... In, in theory, if she just ran her term and waited to 2020, it is possible, surely, it is not outside the realms of possibility that the nationalists and the left leftists could somewhat yeah. merge. Or the nationalists could, uh, could sort of take over the leftists, uh, or take over the opposition, like, narrative. Mm. Like, you could have a rising UKIP party kind of thing that... Uh, due to the weakness of Corbyn's leadership, you could have a w- rising nationalist movement, which possibly uh, could, uh, like you know, w- we're talking extreme hypotheticals here. Sure. But, uh, but once again, no one would have predicted Corbyn. So I mean, uh, nothing is really outside the realms of possibility. But surely it is possible that a national, there could be like a populist uprising by two thousand and twenty. After you know, yeah. Trump has been in the White House for four years. Maybe uh, Marine Le Pen, maybe even Hurt Wilders has come to power. Yeah. Maybe uh, there's been more clashes of you know civilizations. The conflicts in the Middle East have heightened up. We don't know yeah. what the politics of t- of three years' time will be. And right. I'm saying I don't think it's outside the realms of possibility that a sort of a dark horse candidate, I won't call them far right, but a, a nationalist type populist leader could actually outpoll both the Conservatives and the Labour Party. What do you think yeah. of that? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, it's, um, I mean, the, we have we have said how we don't like the term Trump effect, but I mean, it's, it's good shorthand, I suppose. You see this there, the Trump effect, I mean, uh, well, I think, the thing is that, say in the UK, you said you know the leftists and the nationalists and they're being excluded and so on. The thing is, I think a lot of people don't ardently label themselves. You know, like they don't go, "I'm a proud leftist." Like, say, say these old Labour voters, right? They they are technically speaking, they're they're left wing, right? And um, but they're not like so tied to that ideology yeah sure they vote labor because it's the working man's party ostensibly and and that's why they vote have voted labor their whole life and then they go well the labor's not representing me anymore oh where where do i go you know so it's not necessarily like people who it's not people who see themselves as leftists or even people who see themselves as nationalists so um they are perhaps coming from different angles but there's no like um, big ideological divide. These are just people who are who have self-interest and the nation's interest eventually bubble to the top. And because uh, the, the way you put it, I kind of I, I sort of sat, sat back and I think like, um, how can leftists and nationalists work together? Um, odd odd bedfellows. But then I came to the conclusion that well, it's not necessarily people who would be staunchly in those two groups. It's people who, you know, see what's going on and go, oh, hang on, I need to look out for my country. Mm-hmm. And so rather rather than say there'd be an alliance of leftists and nationalists, I think it would be basically vote, voters would leak, 
voters would leak from. Well, we already know that UKIP is kind of a bit of a basket case. Uh, they're not they're not well organised. That they did well through the European Parliament to uh, get Brexit pushed through, but they're gonna they're not going to poll as well as they did in 2015. So you might have their old constituency, which was 13% in 2015, and then you've got all your Brexit voters, which was, you know, 52%. Obviously, a lot of them are going to be conservative voters, but a lot of them are also Labor voters. Some of them are UKIP voters. So now you're starting to get kind of a more... It's fluid, um, yeah. Yeah, you get, get a more of an idea of where these votes come from, and I think it starts to get more coherent as time goes on just where these people lie, where they stand on where on what issues. Um, part of the reason why I think that the Conservatives will probably go up uh, in in uh, seats is that, um, well, they are now the party of Brexit. Um, in terms of majors, there was no Brexit party, but now, now they are, that they're obliged to be the party of Brexit. As I said before, Labor's technically on the fence. They don't have a position, but they are de facto anti-Brexit, as are the Scottish Nationalist Party, as are the Liberal Democrats. Uh, they're all, you know, kind of anti-Brexit. So now you got your Labor, previous Labor voters who voted Labor 2015, but Brexit 2016, they may well now vote Conservative if they can bring themselves to do so. Or they might yeah. vote UKIP. Probably so, not UKIP. It's a bit of a basket case. But, you know... That's part of the reason why. So I think that, that these these voting these blocks are becoming more entrenched, um, but not by party, but more so by uh, issue. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure you agree that the issues, their hot button issue is now becoming Britain's future, Britain's jobs, that kind of thing. And that's neither leftist. You know, it's not a leftist lens. It's not a nationalist lens. It's just, I guess it is. Sorry, more nationalist and. If there is a party, like what you uh, alluded to, that could arise, then yeah, there, there's uh, every. I, I mean, I should have been more succinct about it. May, uh, I could have so gotten a I. really great uh, soundbite. Maybe I'll write an article. But basically, what wh what I'm trying to say is, okay, the conventional narrative is Theresa May called the election uh, in order to thwart a threat from the left, right? Yeah. But what if yeah. she? What if she was actually called the election in order to stop a threat from a nationalist movement? Yeah. No, I um, I, uh, I, I like that angle. I, I do. And um, I don't know that much about Theresa May, but she seems to be a bit of a wily old fox. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if... The thing is, look, the conservatives are not really all that nationalistic. They're not even really all that conservative. To be honest, they're it, it a, is interesting. They're, Sorry, uh, you're right. Uh, I did read like so. Tony Abbott had a piece where he said like, uh, you know, perhaps uh, like in in this climate, um, uh, like in this volatile climate, Theresa May is more prepared to lead Britain than most. Um, so it it is odd because I'm not entirely. You're right, I don't know much about Theresa May. I know that she would have outpolled Boris Johnson 
in a conservative primary if they they'd gone head and yeah. head to head. So I know she's liked more by her party, but yeah, I always kind of saw her as a bit, uh, a little a bit, bit sort of like a Cameron type leftist. But yeah, uh, she, she was anti Brexit. She seems to be embraced as a bit of a uh, conservative like torchbearer now, and I have to wonder is that for what she actually believes in, or is that just because of the absence of anyone else, really? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's a very good point. Um, she, I guess she's just seen as a as a sturdy sort of non-divisive leader. Boris, I guess, has a history and uh, he, has, he has a lot of knockers, and uh, so to speak, and people who think he's a bit of a goof. But... Um, yeah, whereas Theresa May kind of is seen as a, a bit more, a bit more solid in that regard. Um, I do think that something that that's, that might have gone a bit unsaid, but Sheridan does bring up in this article, is that by calling this election, she's decoupled the United Kingdom politics from EU politics from their elections. So you had. Um, what does it say here? Uh, the negotiations are supposed to end in 2019 for, for Brexit. Um, previously, the next general election after that would have been in May 2020. Now it will be 2022, which is giving a whole great deal of time for the, you know, to to sort the business out, like to, to have the fallout, to let everyone adjust. You've got three years, whereas previously you only had 12 months. Uh, so that's that's clever. She's got two years of, of uh, negotiations ahead of her. She's then got three years to let it rest afterwards before the next election. Um, if she can increase her majority uh, by, I don't know, like I think she's got a majority of 12 at the moment um, in terms of absolute majority. Uh, so if she can increase that to like, I don't know, 30, uh, which I think she's a, she's a good chance of, then... Um, that really cements her as really having the authority for Brexit. Yeah. Now, you know, and that's the most important thing right now. People, people, there's been so much talk about, oh, the House of Lords is going to block the Brexit stuff. The House of Commons might play some silly, silly business. This is really going to sort of put to paid the idea that there's still a chance that Brexit won't happen. Yeah, that, I, I think, I, is the main I, thing. I remember I was... um. I was at uni when Brexit happened and there was a debate uh, and this girl was saying, you know, Britain's fucked they need, or they need a uh, another another uh, referendum. That one do- do- doesn't count. And I go, <laughs> okay. I love that. <laughs> and I said, well, you're telling me that a democratically elected government would go against the interests of the people go against the will of the people. I'm like, that is uh, absolutely absurd. Like a democratic election, a, a democratic, uh, a democratic party. It is in their interests to keep yeah. the majority of people happy. It is in their, in, in their interests <laughs> uh, to not arbitrarily just piss people off and say, Oh yeah. no, that vote you just did. You know, the average man on the street, their position is fuck. I hate politics i hate voting the yes. uh, a democratically elected government is not going to say hey you know that extensive campaign we had and all that you know flyering you were pestered on your way for work 
yeah, that's actually invalid. Well, we're going to have to get you to do that again. They're not going to, yeah. like, piss off sw- oh, okay. yeah. s- swaths of the community. But this girl was like, oh, no, they're fucked either way because people... Uh, because people don't want Brexit and they, if they don't have another vote, then they've got to implement Brexit. And because she must have read The Guardian or something, she must have thought Brexit meant the apocalypse. So, Yeah. Yeah, it is, it, it is absurd, as, as you say. Um, but but that, that's the main thing that Theresa May will give herself um, a, a more, more authority for. I, I think that Labor is in big trouble. I mean, I, I don't know about you, um, I mean, they lost, they lost a bunch of seats at, um, at the last, uh, uh, the, the, the 2015 election, they lost, I don't know how many seats, 20, 30 seats. Um, the, and so it, it know, should it, be put into context just how big the UK parliament is just for our listeners that 20, oh, yeah, 20, 30 it, seats is huge in Australia, less so in, uh, yeah. Britain. The House of Commons is 650 MPs. The lower lower house is 650. Um, at the moment, Theresa May has, sorry, the Conservatives, I should say, has 330 seats, um, which is obviously more than half of 650. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn has uh, 232 seats. The Scottish Nationalist Party has 54 seats. And... The Liberal Democrats has nine seats, so, and I think the Greens have one. There's a couple of Irish, you know, things, um, but that's what it is. Anyway, I think that Labor will lose some more seats. They will lose their marginal constituencies, um, which voted which voted exit uh, Brexit. There were several Labor-held uh, constituencies which voted strongly in favour of Brexit. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. So, so I mean, they will soon be able to demonstrate, again, um, just how strong strong their allegiance is to that over party politics. Uh, um, I think that the Scottish Nationalist Party will just about get every electorate in Scotland. I mean, it will it will be historic. I mean, last time it was historic. They, they basically wiped out Labour in Scotland, and they will mop up the remains. Honestly, it is, it is going to be a bloodbath. Uh, Ireland... Um, Irish like uh, Sinn Fein, that their nationalist type parties are going to get more. This is this is just obviously my predictions, but I think that the b- potential big winner from this is the Lib Dems, only because they are like, well, they can only go up. They can really, yeah. I mean, they, they will they were like um, Queensland Labor uh, uh, twenty fifteen. They, well, I don't they think were, they'll go very high up. They're not part of the zeitgeist. No. They're against Brexit. Uh, but they are, but they, yeah, but they are just like, oh, I don't think Labor's sturdy under Corbyn, but I hate the Tories. Well, there you go. I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit skeptical. Uh, but yeah? I suppose I'm skeptical of the Liberal Democrats. I don't really see a point to them, to be honest. Um. Oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're nothing. They're, they're Nick Xenophon bullshit types. Uh, but, uh, but, but I suppose, uh, I mean, in order to give a bit of equal. Uh, well, not equal representation to views, but I mean, I, I'll put it to you, I suppose, and we're wrapping up pretty soon. Yeah. But I mean, what what is there any chance this will backfire? Like, there if is. people see uh, Theresa May as arrogant, you know, yeah. seeking more power than she already has, um, 
strike like poor sportsmanship striking while the opposition is at its weakest is there yeah. any chance people will just say look i'm gonna vote labor i don't r- really like corbyn but i'm gonna vote labor because i want labor to have a fighting chance yeah. i think this is uh poor sportsmanship her kicking them while they're d- while labor's down yeah I-, I think there is a chance i don't think it's a it's a big chance but there's a chance um one of them is the um the fact that i mean there's been in 2014 there was a referendum in scotland the scottish independence and they had their uh scottish um you know local elections they have the 2015 general election in the uk we've had brexit last year i mean in the last in the last 24 months uh to 36 months there's been so many polls being done so many elections i mean it, it's a bit of a buzz phrase these days but uh, election weariness or poll weariness. They're poll tired. Um, I think there's a chance of that. Uh, that, you know, maybe that the Trump effect is starting to diminish. Uh, we saw it in uh, the Netherlands. We saw, we are seeing the French polls now, not having Le Pen way out in front like she was, but I mean, you can't trust the polls anyway. But so maybe we're seeing that the, um, the, the Trump effects in inverted commas diminish. Yeah. Uh, maybe people... Maybe people will try to punish May uh, for making them go back to the polls. And, you know, maybe there's been all this written about how bad Brexit is turning out to be, even though, you know, most of it is is fake news. Um, so perhaps we will see a bit of a backlash. I don't see the Conservatives losing seats, but I think anything anything less than a, oh, let's say five-seat, anything less than a five or maybe ten-seat gain can be seen as perhaps uh, they've wasted a bit of political capital here. Not I, really. I, th- I, I, I think... You disagree? Uh, I, I, I think just winning, just keeping their majority is basically the object of this. Just keep the majority so they have five years to see mm. this through. I, I reckon that is... Uh, that's got to be the object. They don't really need a bigger majority. They just need... I think to- they want a bigger majority. I think they do. I, to, it would to, be to nice. Really, to really have... If they lose seats, I mean, that that is a win to Labor. If they lose seats, Labor and various oppositions can jump on that and say, oh, look, Brexit's been refuted. How? Look at the polls. And they, It's not and refuted they, if, if they lose, like, 10 uh, seats kind of thing. Hey, I, I, I'm not saying that it is. I'm saying that, that it's that's how it will be put, though. That, that's like if, you know, if Malcolm Turnbull... Uh, if Malcolm Turnbull proposed the change to the GST and uh, he lost one seat because of that, but still had a majority, would th- that's not a, a uh, that's not a vote okay. of no confidence in him. That's just thi- you've pissed off a couple of people, but still fifty-one uh, percent or so support you. You know? No, I don't think so. Like, say in the twenty sixteen election in Australia, federal election, Turnbull. The the coalition won, but I mean they only just. Now to me, that wasn't that wasn't the coalition winning very much. That was Labor getting a good, sturdy victory under their belt in terms of where things are headed. You know, the coalition uh, lost more than the Labor Party did. Okay. Um. Oh well. No, I I agree with you there. I I suppose what I'm saying is. So what you've got six hundred and fifty seats in UK yeah. uh, lower house. Uh, at the last election, I've got it up. 
Labor won two thirty two. The uh, yeah. the Conservatives won uh, three hundred and thirty. So I don't really see five seats, or, or you know, if Corbyn wins five or ten seats, I don't think that will save his leadership or save the Labor Party. I don't think that would represent oh. a- any decisive change. However, it's different with our parliament where we've got 150 seats. Labor had 55 yeah. um, in 2013 and Bill Shorten's got it up to 69, which in 150 seat parliament is significant. Whereas fi- yeah. five, 10 seats aren't going to... Uh, it, like th- th- that's not going to make any difference on Labor's fortunes or Corbyn's no. fortunes. It's still going to make it very difficult for five years down the line for Labor to win government, and it's still going yeah. to mean Corbyn's kind of failed in his recovery effort. Yeah, but I think that I mean, honestly, if Labor win five seats, if 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 Theresa May loses five seats, I should say, I think that would be quite extraordinary. To be honest, that that, that would be big news. Okay, uh, one thing I will say, actually, I was going to bring it up before with the Liberal Democrats, uh, and I know we're over time, but uh, look... uh, That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. But uh, with the Liberal Democrats, in a perfect world, what you're saying could be true in terms of, if you think of the Conservatives as centre-right and Labor under Corbyn as far-left... And the Liberal Democrats, they like to present themselves as the middle ground. Uh, and I did, I d- can't remember his name, the Liberal Democrat leader, but I saw him do a press conference. Uh, on, on, Nick on, Clegg? No, Nick Clegg's gone. Oh, he's gone. He, he got trashed last election. Oh, I don't even right. know he, if he, he... He got rolled. Yeah, I think he lost his seat. Yeah, I don't even know if he has a seat, but the new Liberal Democrat leader, and it's a caucus of like eight, so... It's less he's less significant than Richard Di Natale, the new Liberal Democratic leader. So I I haven't bothered uh, Tim Tim Farron. Yeah, I haven't bothered learning his name. But anyway, he <laughs> he said he's like oh well he said words to that effect. He's like oh well the Conservatives are right wing. Uh, if you don't like them, but you're not really ready for like a far left revolution, then you know he effectively said then where your party kind of thing. Yeah. That's how the Liberal Democrats brand themselves as the moderates. But you've only got to look at their supporters to see that's not necessarily the case. So the Liberal Democrats picked up a lot in 2010 uh, because you had the Blair Brown years where you had Labor making a lot of compromises, a lot of concessions to the right. And it was like a protest vote from the left, I would actually argue, in 2010. It wasn't moderates saying, oh, Labour is too far uh, left, I'm going to vote for the Liberal Democrats. No, it was lefties protesting Labour for going too far to the right, similar to the Greens picking up in 2010. And, like, not that these people are representative, but high-profile Liberal Democratic supporters like uh, the actor Colin Firth, for example, uh, the actor Daniel Radcliffe, these people openly voted for the Liberal Democrats in 2010 and have now said they will be voting for Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party in 2017. Really? Like, like that's what I'm saying is the Liberal, the people who voted Liberal Democrat in 2010 were disgruntled lefties who hated the Blair Brown government. These people are now going to vote Labor because they've got They've got their cake. They've got their cake in Jeremy Corbyn. So it's it, the way the Liberal Democrats are positioning themselves is is com- 
completely at odds with the electorate. They are not seen... Their supporters are not the pragmatic moderates. They do not want the Liberal Democratic Party to be a pragmatic moderate party. They want it to be a left-wing party, a, like a far left-wing... Well, not far left, but a principled uh, left-wing party. I see, I see, yeah. It's yeah. sort of the eternal... It, it's the same as the Democrats here in Australia. The Democrats in Australia, ultimately, I mean, there's a lot of uh, literature about what went wrong. Some say by backing Howard's GST, uh, the Democrats in Australia got obliterated. But another argument is the Democrats didn't really know. Like, originally, they were started by a Liberal Party MP as a like a Liberal left MP in opposition to Malcolm Fraser. But then the yeah. Democrats here started to think, uh, like they struggled to gain traction on the ground against the Greens and like other minor parties on the left. And so as a result, they didn't get the airtime. Like there's a lot of argument to suggest that the Democrats here crumbled because they couldn't make up their mind between whether they were a centrist party or a left-wing party. And I think the same... A eternal question will affect the Liberal Democrats in the UK. Yeah, um, I mean, that is that is coming from a um, a more educated sort of uh, um, political theorist point of view. To be honest, I think that people that there will be people who fall back to the Liberal Dems. I think that the Lib Dems will get a few few more seats. Uh, I think, like, it, it's just. One of the facts, I guess, of, of having like a three-party thing, people have abandoned them last election, but now they're like, oh, well, they're anti-Brexit, they're anti -Brexit, but they're not the crazy Labour. I'm a sensible guy. I'm a sensible guy who doesn't want Brexit. Guess I'll vote for the Liberal Democrats. Oh, well, uh, sure. I mean, as I say, I don't know who Tim Farron is. I mean, maybe, he, maybe being moderate is what he's all about. I, I wouldn't know. Uh, no, I got no idea. All, all I know is their highest vote came from a, a big left-wing voter base of disgruntled yeah. Labor people. So, um, I mean, we'll see. I, I definitely don't want to refute you and say that they won't pick up seats, but I don't think, I don't think they'll be back anywhere near their 2010 standards. I don't think they'll outpoll Labor. I think Labor will clearly outpoll them, just like. Yeah. Just like I, I thought that, you know, there was talk of a Tony Blair come back. If Tony Blair came back with the Tony Blair United Party or whatever he called it, I don't think yeah. he would outpoll Labor either. So No. No, I just want to say briefly closing, um the the, the Scottish like the Scots are gonna have to wanna become independent again, I reckon, because they they went from six MPs in twenty no pre twenty fifteen to 56, they've wiped Labour out. They've refuted British politics. They're, you know, they're they're gonna they're gonna uh, finish mopping up the pieces and have. I would not be surprised if they had maybe two or three electorates that weren't SNP. Um, and then uh, the UKIP is they they polled 13% as, uh, across the UK and got one seat. They're like one nation, you know. Um, and then if you look at Scottish, uh, the SNP, they polled 4.7% across the UK, obviously, because they only stand in Scotland, 56 seats. So it's something to watch there. Uh, UKIP, UKIP will probably get one seat. They'll keep their one seat, which is where Douglas Carswell 
he's announced that he's not he's 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 actually an independent at the moment and he's not going to stand again uh, and uh that's all that's going to happen that's my prediction anyway. Uh, I guess yeah, it's probably well, a bit it's early. something to follow certainly in the weeks ahead. But I, I reckon though that, um, well, I, I actually would say to counter that slightly that it is possible that Jer- uh, Jeremy Corbyn would poll better amongst uh, Scottish people than uh, Ed Miliband. So I, I say so. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not actually sure that uh, Labor will be totally wiped out in Scotland. I don't know if they'll pick up any seats in Scotland, but I don't think they'll be totally wiped out. I think, I, I, I think generally, it w- it was left wing voters kind of thing that it, it, rivals on the left that uh, took seats on uh, off Ed Miliband, and so I, I don't see any reason why those people will be uh. really anti Corbyn. I think. Uh, unless they view him as a little bit too weak on Brexit, maybe because you know we yeah. all know that Jeremy Corbyn supported Brexit but didn't uh, didn't campaign for, uh, uh, like campaigned against it very weakly. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we, we might leave that one there then. Hey Tim. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Sam, for tuning in all from right. uh, from skyping in from Tanham Sands. No worries. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Tim, for inviting me on again. Inviting me on. <laughs> Inviting me onto my own podcast. <laughs> all right, yeah. To all our listeners, thank you. Uh, we hope. Uh, we hope. Well, you have missed us a lot. We hope that. We hope that uh, yeah. you're finally satisfied that we're back on air. That we're back now, doing now that, our podcast. Now that we're doing it. Now that we're doing hour and a half episodes. <laughs> we're making up for lost time. Making up for lost time. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, have a good week. You all laughed at me. Well, I have to say, you're not laughing now, are you? You're not saying anything, Tony. I've given you the response you deserve.